Okay. Well, we'll go ahead and get started today. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. And I had one of you come up after class and asked a really good question about um, the kind of the kingdom of God and what is it? How does it work? And I'd love to go over a little bit of that before we dive into our text today in Matthew chapter 18. So uh, the, the kingdom of God, which we've been talking about over and over again in Matthew, is a big theme in uh, Judaism, right? They were looking forward to the kingdom. And obviously the kingdom needs a king, just like any good kingdom. And in the same way that that king was the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, one ingredient, um, if you guys were in the service today, how many of y'all were in the service, by the way? Everybody? Pretty much, or a lot of you? Yeah, several. Anyway, if you weren't in the service, we were talking about Matthew 16, where the disciples were disappointed that Jesus was leaving, right? They were sad, and even though he was offering them the greater gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, Emma? We're in Matthew, um, but I am talking to you a little bit about John, so that's why it's confusing. I'm talking about the kingdom. Oh, sorry. Sorry, John 16. Thank you. Yeah, maybe I said it wrong. Um, but anyway, so John 16, um, uh, Emma's dad, he was talking about how the disciples were so sad uh, to see Jesus leave, obviously, and did not see the greater gift of the Holy Spirit, right? that he was giving to them. And part of the reason why they were sad that Jesus was leaving is without the king, there'd be no kingdom, right? They wouldn't have this physical rule on earth, right? Because the king was going to be physically taken from them. And so a massive ingredient there that the Jews were anticipating is this physical kingdom on earth prophesied in the Old Testament that he would reign um, and ultimately rule forever. Um, as we kind of talked about from Second. Samuel 7, that one of David's descendants would reign on the throne forever. And that is something definitely that we're looking forward to, right? That physical rule of Christ on earth forever. Hasn't happened yet, will happen one day um, when he returns. But while we're waiting that, it's not as if Christ isn't reigning, right? Remember um, what Pastor Rich was saying, where Jesus is now, right? He's ascended to the right hand of God. He is in that position of authority. And there is a spiritual kingdom available to us even now. Colossians 1.13. You guys could jot down that verse, look at it sometime. Uh, but it talks about how Christ has transferred us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of, uh, actually God has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Right. So we are in the spiritual kingdom of God right now. Um, and here we are on earth. Right. Jesus is not the president. He's not the king on earth, but he is the king in heaven, right? And he reigns and rules for us spiritually um, in our in this church context and ultimately in our hearts as well. So you, do you guys kind of see that distinction between the physical kingdom, which will be coming very soon, right? Sometimes people confuse us, but there's a physical kingdom that is coming and Jesus will reign for a thousand years. You could read about that in Revelation 20, um, but there's also a spiritual kingdom that's ruling in the hearts of all who are believers, right? So and that that's in Colossians 1.13. You can see that. Any questions about that or kind of make sense between the spiritual kingdom that's going on right now and the physical kingdom that'll come one day? Any questions about that? Clear as mud? Awesome. Okay. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Clear as mud. Clear as mud is a funny thing you say. Um, exactly. Exactly. It's kind of like saying, okay, it's complicated, but maybe you understand it a little better. That's, that's a fancy way of saying that so <laughs> um, 
Uh, kind of, kind of a silly way, I should say. Oh, a silly way of saying yeah. that. <laughs> Clear as mud. Anyway, awesome. Actually, Callie and I were talking about what time does sarcasm start making sense to people? Like, what, what is that? What is that threshold? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe soon. But anyway, um, we'll go ahead and get started with Matthew 18. And um, before we do, let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer, and we'll dive into our text today. King Jesus, thank you for who you are, that you do reign and rule right now from your throne in heaven, Lord, in the hearts of those who have called on your name here on earth, Lord, um, us, your church, Lord, we have been transferred from that domain of darkness into your kingdom, Lord. Thank you for that. And we know for a fact that one day you will return to earth, that you will reign and rule on your throne in Jerusalem over all of creation, Lord. Um, and we are anticipating that day, Lord, when you return um, so soon. But in the meantime, Lord, I pray that we would be those who submit ourselves to your authority, Lord, that we would bow the knee before you in every area of life. And today, as we see um, what it means to be truly uh, mature, to grow up, to be um, who we are supposed to be, Lord, um, that we would take these steps, Lord, to uh, make these necessary changes, Lord, in our lives, um, that we might be honoring to your son who came 2,000 years ago to redeem us for yourself, Lord. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So in Matthew 18 and really this following section, we're going to be studying um, a couple of different themes. You guys have several blanks on your outlines, but the main one to kind of tie it all together is this theme of maturity, of maturity. And maturity is something that you guys are rapidly growing in, right? You know, if you're in high school, you're starting to reach that adulthood phase, you know, middle school, you guys are starting to make those stepping stones up into that phase of life. And there's a lot of questions like, what does it mean to really be mature, to be a mature human, right? And a lot of people you'll find in the world and probably already have found in a lot of ways, see this differently, right? Some people say, hey, you've got to take as much as you can for yourself, right? Whoever has the most toys wins. That's one mentality. Um, accumulating stuff, accumulating power, accumulating friends, right? You know, how many friends can I have on Facebook or Instagram or what's popular these days? Is it Facebook still? TikTok, TikTok. TikTok. So followers on TikTok, is that a thing? Is that how you say it? Followers? Okay. Followers on TikTok. Okay. So what is the real way to maturity, right? And it was no different in Matthew's day and age as well, where there were different people who would seek different ways of kind of grabbing what they thought they needed right in life. Um, we've obviously seen several themes throughout the Gospel of Matthew. The real authority on humanity has spoken several times in his teachings, right, and has given clarity to this. We're going to see some of those themes come up again in our section from chapter 18 on through um, the chapter 23 that we're going to cover today. Um, so one of these questions here we see posed by the disciples. Um, they come to Jesus in verse 1. And at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Right here is a question that we should be asking, right? Speaking of the kingdom, right? Who is going to be the greatest in Jesus's opinion, right? How can you be the best at what you're doing? The, the kind of furthest along. Um, and again, you know, oftentimes you would think it's the person who's the most learned, right? The one who knows the Bible the best, or maybe the person who's got the most money, right? Because they're the most blessed by God. Those were some of the common themes going on in that day and age. Uh, but Jesus, he does something very surprising. He calls to him, not one of the kind of 
higher-ups in Israel. He doesn't bring forth a Pharisee or even a priest or a high priest. But instead, he calls to him, in verse 2, a child. A child. You'd think this would be the opposite of maturity, right? Uh, but, but look at what Jesus says. He put this child in the midst of them. And in verse 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it is a childlike faith that Jesus is, um, and I'm pulling up the blanks on the outline here so you guys can see this first blank. So if you guys have pens, we're going to go to this first blank here. Um, the kingdom of heaven is for the humble, is for the humble. There's a humility, right, that comes with a child. What, what are they able to do, right? How much is... Um, how many of you guys have like a baby brother or sister? Like one who's under the age of five. Anybody got one under the age of five? No. Anybody got one under the age of four? Under the age of four, anybody? Well, how about under the age of three? He's got the youngest. Anyone under the age of three? What about two? You got two? Uh, how old is yours? Two. two. How old is yours? Two. Two. Okay, so you've got a tie. You've got, you've got a younger? Nope. No. Okay, <laughs> Josh. <laughs> anyway, so we've got, what? Uh, what? Oh, you said you've got one? Who's like younger than two? Yeah. How old is Luke? Luke? Isn't he your youngest? He's like seven. No, the youngest is 13. Oh, 13. Wait, no, maturity-wise. Oh, maturity-wise. Anyway, so you guys, you guys have the tie for your youngest. So we've got a two-year-old kid. And um, how much is your two-year-old, do you have a brother or sister? Brother, brother so both brothers. Um, so how much can your two-year-old brother do by himself? Destroy things. Destroy things. So he's good at taking things down. How about, how about yours, Emma? Can yours get dressed by himself? Uh, no. No. Can't put on his shoes. Can, can he get his own food? Yeah. No. Well, he can't open it. He can't open it yet. Doesn't have the dexterity, right? <laughs> He can put on his boots. Okay, well, big step. Um, but yeah, anyway, so when you think about a child, right, there's a lot of inability, right? There's a lot of things that they can't do on their own. There's a lot of humility involved in being a little kid and being needy for other people to help you regularly. Guys, whoever humbles himself like a child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Remember that theme we talked about back in Matthew 5, verse 2, right? Blessed is that person who, what? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You guys remember that? Who are needy, who see that they have this need for God, right? Um, so this is the first step of spiritual maturity, right? In terms of baby steps, this is the first one, is do you see that need you have before God that you cannot do it on your own, like, like this child? Um, and then in addition to that, um, he goes a step further here in verse 5. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. So here we have not only the fact that we ought to be like children towards our Lord, right? To see that we have that childlike dependence on him, right? It's an acknowledging of reality, right? That our 
are, you know, atoms don't fly apart, right? Physicists are baffled that a bunch of protons are stuck together. How many of you guys have studied atoms yet? So several, several of you older, older guys have studied atoms. And you've got all these protons stuck together in the middle. It's a wonder to them that they don't fly apart, right? Like charges repel. But somehow it stays together. And it's an amazing thing, guys, that God, he holds us together. We are so dependent on him, right? Seeing reality that we are dependent on him not only physically but spiritually. Right? We can't even take a step spiritually without that humble dependence on him, just like a child. Right? But in the same way, guys, helping those little ones, helping believers, fellow believers to go towards who? To go towards Christ. Right? That is what he's talking about here. And if you turn people away from Christ, right, towards pride, towards self-sufficiency, whatever it might be, it would be better to have a millstone fastened around your neck to be drowned in the depths of the sea. How many of you guys have ever been close to drowning in your life? Anybody here been close to drowning? What was it like? Um, they're just, the energy just falling down. You feel hopeless. Pretty helpless, right? And pretty, pretty scary too? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You've been close to drowning? Yeah. Yeah, what was it like? Scary. I was like five and mom forgot to put on my clothes and went down into the water. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. But you, you got down there and they were able to get you up, okay? Okay, nice. Anybody else? I saw a couple other hands. Yeah, what was it like? Um, what happened? So my mom wasn't paying attention to me, and I just like jumped in. Oh, man. It was like this swirling. It was swirling pool, so she grabbed me. I was freaking out. Oh, man. How old were you? I can't remember. It was like, like a little guy. five or six. Yeah. Seven. Yeah. My sister doesn't remember this, but she was like walking next to a pool, and she just fell and was just standing there. Oh, what? no. So Peyton doesn't remember this. No, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do. When Logan tell the story. I was like on a tube and I fell into it, so I wasn't being seen. I was just bobbing up and down. Oh, oh no. Nope. Peyton doesn't remember this. So Adrian was at a friend's house. Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. No. At Shane's? Yeah. Oh. So it, I wasn't there. So apparently he was in it too. But Adrian and, and the friend were just talking. And Peyton was just under the water, like couldn't get up, couldn't breathe. And this little nonverbal kid was trying to get their attention. And he couldn't, and he couldn't. And then finally, just out of exasperation, the mom looks and goes, what? And little Shane just points in the pool, and there's just Peyton underneath that couldn't oh, get out. Oh, no. So all worked out, but... It was pretty scary. And I wasn't there, so like to hear it secondhand was very much like, either way, hold on, what? Oh, yeah. That's freaky. Yeah. We, we actually had one of those instances, too. Um, do you remember, Cal? How can you forget with Cooper? Yeah. Right? You know, it's like, how can we forget? Yeah, all of a sudden, we're like, where's Cooper? And we look, and there he is in the bottom of the pool. <laughs> we're like, oh, no. Like, we, we quick got him out. And thankfully, it was only like a second or two, but yeah. Yeah. It was a little bit like yours, but I got stuck in like a really deep, it was like a 12-foot whirlpool. Actually. Oh, boy. Not like 12, but that's an exaggeration. But it was like 8 feet. Um, and I couldn't touch the bottom. And I, I was like, I don't know, 4. 
and I couldn't get out. Oh no, that's, I mean, you think about how scary that time was, right? When you were sitting there on the bottom of the pool. Guys, that is how bad it is to lead people away from Christ towards self-sufficiency, towards other things, right? Other than that childlike dependence on him. And then he continues, uh, Matthew does, um, into the temptations to sin, right? All of these things are coming um, upon us, and they do, but woe to the people by whom they come, right? So we ought to be radical against our sin, right? That same fear you have of the depths of the water, right, and drowning, that same fear we ought to have for sin, right, and for the depths of it and what it pulls us into, right? If your hand or your foot, look at this radical nature that um, Jesus speaks of with, in terms of sin. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better to enter life crippled or lame. Um, and guys, I don't mean go home and chop off your hand if it causes you to punch. You know, if you punch your brother, it's like, oh boy, I got to take it to the chopping block. No, what I'm talking about, though, is a radical attitude towards fighting your sin, right? This is what it looks like to be mature. This is what it looks like to actually follow after the Lord, that humble, that fear of the Lord. Right, which is the beginning of wisdom. Take steps. Hey, why did I get angry with my brother? Um, and think about it. And then go to the Lord and say, in humble dependence, what did I do wrong, Lord? Please help me. Where did my heart's desires go astray? Right, And actually kind of look at those things seriously in your heart and make the changes that need to be made. Right, Okay, maybe I was idolizing this video game or this um, book or whatever it might be that my brother had. And so I got angry, punched him, whatever it is. Guys, take those steps. Right? Seriously think about your sin. Just as seriously as if you're on the bottom of the pool, almost out of breath, wanting to get back up. That same desperation, guys. That is what it looks like to be mature in terms of fighting our sin. Right? And our Lord's attitude towards those right, who are humble, um, we see here in this parable of the lost sheep. See to it that, none of, uh, that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is the will of my Father who is in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish, right? Um, guys, God has such a radical attitude towards that restoration, towards bringing people in, so much so that he sent his son, right, to die for that sin. Um, that we committed, um, so much so that he would take those steps, right, to see that one be restored. And guys, that is the context that we find maybe this familiar passage. You guys have probably heard this before, Matthew 18, verse 15 and following. The, what do we do if someone sins against us, right? What are those necessary steps, right? This is really critical to our own hearts, right? Um, and kind of leads to that second blank on our outline as well. The kingdom of heaven is for the humble and forgiving and forgiving, right? There's that humility that we talked about, that childlike humility, but also this quickness to forgive, to restore, to see people brought back into the fold, right? As it were, if they've wandered astray. So in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, right? This is kind of that first step. So we'll just start off with step number one right here um, in terms of the um, steps we're going to see with kind of what's called this um, kind of church discipline process. But starting off by going to your brother, right? This is maybe the last thing you'd want to do for some of us. Some of us maybe we're better at this, but 
um, going to the person who has wronged us. Sorry, you guys are in the spit zone. I just spit on Peyton. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, but um, maybe you didn't notice. Sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't have said it. Anyway, so going to the person, right, who has wronged you. Um, that is what we need to do uh, to be intentional, right? If someone has... Uh, if someone's done something against you guys, go to that person and talk to them about it. Um, we've been trying to do this in our household consistently. You know, Ezra inevitably or Emma or one of our kids will come up to me and they'll say, Daddy, you know, so-and-so did this to me. And I'm like, okay, you need to go to that person. You need to talk to them about it, right? But in the same way, guys, at home, like let's say someone does something to you. Instead of running off to mom and dad or whoever it might be, right? Um, friends, whoever, go to that person, right? Don't just badmouth them behind your back. Go to that person with the fault that they've committed against you. This is really important. And guys, if you've committed a fault as well, be ready to receive that from the person you've faulted or maybe even go to them, right? Um, and apologize, right? If you feel convicted, see that you've done something wrong, go to that person. Keep it local, right? That is the main aim here is restoration. So we don't need to be spreading that around, right? Go to that person who's sinned against you. And that can only come from an attitude, guys, of forgiveness, of that forgiveness, of that humility that we talked about earlier. Because otherwise, you're just going to be angry at what they did, right? You want to get them in trouble, so you go to mom and dad. Or you want to badmouth them behind their back, so you go to friends, right? That's not restoration. That's not forgiveness. That's not being like your father, right? Your heavenly father in heaven. Um, instead, going to that person is the first step in this re restorative process. Um, however, maybe you guys have done this and found that they did not listen to you at first, right? Maybe this person, maybe you can think of a specific situation that this has happened, and then they don't listen. So what do you do? Well, if they know the Lord, um, here's the second step, right? You take one or two others along with you, um, right? Um, who maybe have seen this problem happen, um, or maybe they haven't seen it. And then, you know, after going to them and they don't listen, then you can go to your parents and try to bring them in, right? Now you're in the right frame of mind because you're trying to get this wrong corrected for them, trying to help them. And now you can help bring in maybe mom, dad, maybe a friend, right, um, at an older age, um, someone else along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Oftentimes at this point, right, it's, it's more rare, you know, if this person is in a right frame of mind, you know, if they're humble, if they're listening, especially if there's two or three people, you know, there to bring that fault, um, there is usually more restoration that occurs at that second step, right? Um, however, that's not always the case. If he refuses to listen to them, then, um, you know, and this is where your parents maybe have more wisdom. You know, being able to tell to the church, go into the leadership of the church to deal with this problem, you know. And that's where, you know, someone with more wisdom could have step um, kind of into, hey, when do we need to take that third step of telling it to the church? If he refuses to listen to even the church, right, as the church kind of comes alongside, tries to help this person. Um, we've been through a couple church discipline cases, and maybe you guys have seen this process happen at New Community, um, where someone has been brought in and um, not um, listened after these three steps of seeking to bring them in and restore them. Um, then he needs to be put out of the church. And right, this is for his benefit, um, because... We don't want him thinking that he's trusted the Lord if he's refusing to listen to even the Lord's bride, the church, right? If he's refusing to listen even at this point, we don't want him falsely duped into thinking that he is saved, right? And then we can help evangelize that person. Uh, we need to treat him, though, as one who's outside of the body of Christ. 
Um, all that to say, we see kind of a very key principle here of res restoration, right? And the second principle I want to show you guys before we get into some discussion is that of forgiveness, that of forgiveness. So um, you guys have probably heard this parable before. There is, um, you know, a, basically a question Peter brings up, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother if he sins against me? As many as seven times? Jesus says 70 times seven. And the reason for this, um, for forgiving someone again and again and again, maybe you guys have been in this situation where, you know, your younger brother, sister, or maybe older, whoever it might be, keeps teasing you, keeps doing something wrong to you, and you're forgiving them once maybe, and then they do it again, right? It's like, hey, I just forgave you. You haven't changed, right? Um, what's going on here? And that's only twice. And Peter's like, hey, seven times. Jesus says far more than that. Why? Uh, well, this parable. Um, it's because of, um, listen to this, there's a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servant and brought to him someone who owed 10,000 talents. This is billions of dollars. This is a debt no one could pay, right? This is an astronomical amount of money. And since he could not pay, obviously, his master ordered him to be sold, his wife, children, all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant, he falls on his knees in verse 26. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Obviously, he cannot do this. In verse 27, what does this king do? He has pity for him, right? That compassion. And the servant um, is released and he's forgiven the debt. So guys, this is very much like what God has done for us. He's forgiven us a debt we could not pay. Guys, we could spend an eternity in hell and not pay the debt that we owe to God for sinning again and again against him on his world where he has so clearly made himself known to us. Guys, that is a debt we cannot pay. And if you see that you've been forgiven that debt, guys, then that will fuel those Matthew 18 attitudes, right? It'll fuel those responses towards the other people. If you see if you've been forgiven everything, you owe it to others to forgive them as well. Um, but we see something very different in verse 28. The same servant he went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. By the way, this is 100 days uh, wage. So this is a third of your annual income, right? This is tens of thousands of dollars, right? You know, maybe 10, 20, 30,000 bucks somewhere in that range. It's a lot of money. This is a big offense. Let's say someone does something to you that is that grievous right against you. Something really bad, something that really they owe you back. Guys, what is your attitude towards that person? Is it one of forgiveness or is it like this servant who seizes him, begins to choke him saying, pay what you owe. His fellow servant, very familiar, right? Fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. But instead, verse 30 here, he refused. He went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw this, they were greatly distressed, right? They reported to their master all that had taken place. And look at what the master says to him. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Right? This is what hits home to us. Guys, we ought to have mercy on other people as God has had mercy on us. And this is what happened to this servant, right? He was delivered to the jailers and jailers should pay all his debts. So also, mark this, guys, will my heavenly Father will do to each one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, right? If you have been forgiven, guys, you can't help but forgive. If you haven't been forgiven, guys, then you have not been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It is hard work but we need to see the massive debt we've been forgiven. So how has Jesus, for discussion for us, how has Jesus helped you become more humble 
and forgiving, kind of both of those things. What do you see with the Lord? If you've come to know him as Lord and Savior, how has he caused you to become more humble, first of all, and also more forgiving as well? What would you guys say? This water bottle's really loud. Hmm? This water bottle is really loud. Callie I said. Really? Yeah. Does it? One of the ones that I used to use for school didn't have a straw. And oh. so every time I drank out of it, everyone would like, call me a dolphin. <laughs> nice. You'd be like, is there a dolphin in here? <laughs> what would you guys say? That? How has Jesus helped you become more humble and more forgiving? Yeah, Emma. Showing me that, that if I've been forgiven, I should forgive others. 100%. Right? I mean, think about what you have been forgiven in Christ. Yeah, go ahead. Totally, like tough circumstances in life, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's one of those circumstances right there, right? <laughs> you know, that, that friction is good for us, right? It helps us to grow in that humble forgiveness. What are some other circumstances that God has brought into your guys' lives that have caused you to kind of bring those things up to the surface, right? Those trials. Siblings are a big one, right? I mean, can be, can be really hard. What else has God brought into your life that's helped you grow in this humility and forgiving attitude? Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. I mean, you guys will probably see a lot of people, you know, this time of year and it's obviously an exciting time to hang out with family. It also can be a difficult time in some ways too, right? You know, now is the time to be preparing ourselves to be, to be emulating Christ in these different ways, to really be mature, to have that humility and that quickness to forgive. Um, what are maybe some ways you guys can think of to kind of prepare yourselves for that, to have that humility and forgiveness, both as you go home, throughout the holidays, and in your life in general? Totally. Remembering that, yeah. It's really good. What else? Anybody else? I see some action going on over here. There we go. We got we got a question <laughs> or, or an answer. No, never mind. Okay, yep, it, it was a force upon him. <laughs> awesome. Well, guys, hopefully you can see that one of the key steps towards maturity in Christ is this humility and that attitude of forgiving others. Right? Really, that's the grease that helps the gears of a relationship run. Right? That forgiveness, that deferring to others, that same mindset that Christ had, right, who humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? This is so key in the Christian life, that humility and that forgiveness. Um, so next, we're going to move on to uh, chapter 19. And here we're going to see um, later on, initially, we're going to see a little bit more on forgiveness, but um, the king gives authority to those who put themselves last. So the next blanks on your outline, the king gives authority to those who put themselves last, 
Um, so here's another contrast, right? Usually the people who are seen as up top, mature, are people who put themselves first, right? But instead what we're going to see is quite the opposite in chapter 19. So first of all, a little bit more on forgiveness, right? There's this forgiveness that occurs in the context of marriage, um, the, the children, right, the humility, um, and then the rich young man is really where we start to see that theme uh, really take root. So here we've got a guy, um, and the disciples uh, would probably think, hey, this is a perfect guy to join our squad, right? He's got resources. Um, he is a, um, he's, you know, kept the law. This seems like the man. Um, so a man comes up to him and says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Um, first of all, that, that kind of shows where he's at, right? Has he kind of crossed that first step of humility, right? Seeing that he can't do it on his own, that he needs help, that he needs really salvation completely from the Lord. He can't do anything good on his own. No. In fact, he's asking, hey, what do I need to do to get into that kingdom, right? To have that eternal life. And here's what Jesus says. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good, right? Because ultimately it's about Jesus. Um, there's only one who is good. There's only one who's actually able to um, fully keep the commandments. Uh, and that's what he points him to. He says, if you'd enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, he just lists them off from, right? No murder. And remember what he said earlier, guys. Anger is the same as murder. You know, have, have we been angry with someone before? You know, let's be honest with ourselves. Um, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus says even a lustful look, right, is the same as adultery in the heart. Um, have we been there? Have we done that? You shall not steal, you know, even one time. You shall not bear false witness. Have we lied ever before? Honor your father and mother. You know, have we done that always throughout our lives? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, you know, do we love people as much as we love ourselves every moment of every day? The young man said to him, all these I have kept. Wow. Um, you know, that, that's a pretty bold statement right there. What do I still lack? Well, Jesus, he says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. And why? Because he had great possessions. Right? This is where his thoughts were. This is where his attitude was, right? He wanted to add on to his life versus lose his life for the sake of Christ and for his kingdom. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they have a lot to give up, a lot of things of this world, right? Jesus said whoever will lose his life will keep it. Um, and there's a lot to give up there. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are shocked. Why? Because they thought the rich people were the ones who were blessed by God. Um, and so they say, who then can be saved, right? Who, who actually can be saved? Uh, Jesus looks at them, though, and says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Remember, even what Pastor Rich was just preaching on, right? He had manifested himself to his people through seven miraculous signs through seven I am statements, and that didn't get through to them. Ultimately, it is God who works, his Holy Spirit, right? Remember what Jesus said in John 3. It is the Spirit who causes that regeneration, right? We cannot do this on our own. We have to see that poverty in spirit um, and the fact that it is only possible with God. Um, Peter said to him in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, Right, this is that physical kingdom we've talked about. 
when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, which is coming, uh, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Guys, that day is coming one day, and that future physical kingdom, that will occur. And everyone who has left houses or brothers, sisters, father, mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first, right? There's that reversal that we were talking about. Guys, don't look to the people and the things of this world as, hey, that's what it really means to get life, right? To get that many followers on TikTok or that much money or whatever it might be, right? That much prestige. That's not where true life is. True life is in following Christ and following the Messiah. The things that last forever, guys, are your soul, God's word, right? We've talked about this. And ultimately, you know, God himself. Those are the things to be investing yourself in. Um, not in the things of this world, which are passing away, right? So in the same way, guys, um, how can you put his kingdom and others first? What does that look like in our life? Does it look like forming a holy huddle, you know, and just kind of doing nothing? Um, or does it look like, you know, something different? What would you guys say? How does it look? And even looking at this chapter that we just looked at, what does it look like to put his kingdom first, right? What would you guys say to that? In our lives, how we live. Yeah, Emma. Instead of going out and watching a movie or something, instead of reading your Bible. Totally. We could we could read our Bible instead of watching a movie. And if we are watching a movie, how could we do that to glorify God well as well? Yeah, Emma. Tells us about him, absolutely. So you could pick the content of your movie for sure. Um, you know, even if the movie doesn't directly have any sort of theme exactly about the Lord, you can still interpret it right through our Christian worldview, right, and learn things um, sometimes from from the word and from the world, right. You, know, you can see how things are depicted, right, and see um, different, you know, kind of maybe sin problems going on, and that can further reinforce what's going on, right looking at everything with those Christ-stamped eyes, right? Um, and viewing things in light of that. Yeah, Emma. Seeing how to react to things, like watching a movie and then thinking, how can I react to this in a godly manner? Totally. Absolutely. So just watching it and saying, I'm done. I'm just going to watch another one. That's really good. Totally. Yeah, don't turn your brain off, right? You know, amusement. Um, you know, amuse the opposite of thinking. Don't do that, right? When you're watching something, think, use your mind, and actually discern, right? Be discerning as you're, you know, kind of looking at different content. Absolutely. But what does it look like? Um, that, that's a great point, though. You're bringing up, Emma, you know, spending time in God's Word. What else can you guys think of? How can we put His kingdom first? Yeah. Totally. So yeah, our flesh, right, pulls us one way, you know, towards desires that we may have, you know, that we may want to do, just want to sit on the couch or do whatever. And there's nothing inherently wrong with taking rest or doing those things. But also, you know, the spirit as well. What um, if we do trust the Holy Spirit, what that looks like to live our lives for God and others, right? That may mean, hey, I'm going to sit on the couch with my sibling, with someone who I haven't spent time with and, you know, sit down and watch a movie. That's fine. But also it might mean, you know, hey, I'm going to get up and do something, be active. I'm going to clean the dishes for my folks. Why? Because I want to put God's kingdom first. I want to show Christ in everything I do, right? God has endured the curse that I might bless other people, right? Um, on, um, yeah, so anyway, those are some, some great points. Yeah, what else can you guys think of? What are other ways that we could put God's kingdom first in our life?
Anything from chapter 20 or anything else you guys can think of? Putting others before yourself, absolutely. That's exactly what Jesus did for us, right? And that, that's really good. You know, really there's this mindset shift that occurs here too, right? There's this mindset shift from me to others, right? Love God, love others versus love of self, right? You know, those two are just on those opposite ends of the spectrum. And we can love God and others well, right? Each step of the way as we spend time with him, right? As we seek to serve others, or we can just seek to be self-serving, right? There's that contrast there. Um, and that mindset shift of seeing things in light of his kingdom, right? Look with those glasses, right? Like we were talking about, look at everything and, hey, how can we make much of Christ in this moment? Seize the moment for Jesus, right? On how that mentality each step of the way. Um, and any other kind of thoughts on that, how we can put his kingdom first? Awesome. I just realized we only have like seven minutes left. Um, let, let's go ahead. I'm going to go and give you the blanks on the outline as well um, here for the final sections. We'll see what we can get to. Chapter 20, we see the Son of Man. He's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem here. Uh, we see kind of that ramping up in verses 17 and following there. Um, he's heading up towards Jerusalem. Um, and in addition to that, uh, we see what will happen at Jerusalem, right? So the Son of Man, though, as he's doing this, he heals the blind and the lame. And this is something that actually came um, from David's time. So in 2 Samuel, um, David, he takes over the city of Jerusalem. And he does so, um, and you guys can read more about this in 2 Samuel chapter 5. But he does so, and the joke that the Jebusites, the people in Jerusalem are giving to David is like, hey, even the blind and lame can warn you off. Our walls are so big. Um, and David's like, um, you know, Joab, he goes up through this tunnel. It's actually really cool. How many of you guys like doing parkour? Anybody? Parkour? We've got a parkour back here. Parkour. It's kind of parkour old. Parkour is like an obstacle course. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty fun. But anyway, this is like, you like parkour too? Uh, but this is like the ultimate parkour because there's this tunnel, um, pretty much just a well that goes straight up into the sky. And Joab, he just like, jump from stone to stone just straight up this thing and gets in, unlocks the gate, and opens up the city, and the Israelites are able to take over. But anyway, so David, though, he, you know, says, hey, you know, the, these blind and lame, I was able to take them over. You can read more 2 Samuel 5. But here we see that the son of David, he comes in, and he actually heals the blind and lame. You can see that in verse 29 and following. Um, in this kind of narrative here where we see um, that he's actually able to do this and pity touches their eyes and immediately they recover their sight and follow him. So this is the real king, right? Um, real king of Israel. And he's here um, just like David, except this time instead of eliminating the blind and lame, he actually heals them and um, one-ups David for sure. Uh, so the discussion question, uh, which we're just going to kind of, I'll let you guys consider that on your own time. How can you follow the Son of Man's example of service, right? Um, so he comes in and he's here to serve um, rather than to be served and to give his life as a ransom of many, right? Um, he is the king of this city. He could have come in and taken over not only the city, but the entire world. But that verse you guys are probably familiar with, Matthew 20, verse 28, this is a great one to commit to memory. Um, even the Son of Man, right? Daniel 4 or Daniel 7 verse 14 tells us that the Son of Man 
when he would come, he was to be served by all the nations, right? Everyone would submit themselves underneath the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And he picks out that same title. And instead of saying he's here to be served, he's saying he's here to serve. And he's here to serve in such a profound way that he's here to give up his own life as a ransom for many. Guys, if Jesus did that for us, we ought to be willing to get up off of the couch to serve other people, right? Or to serve our kids or, you know, for us adults in the room or to serve, you know, your brothers and sisters for you guys um, in here or friends or whoever it might be. Guys, think about what Jesus did um, when he died for our sins, right? As he approached that cross, um, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many. So how is that, you know, going to drive our service, right? Is one thing we could consider. Another thing, chapter 20. Um, so when he gets into Jerusalem, the king gets into Jerusalem in chapter 21, uh, we see kind of a lot of different responses to Jesus, right? His authority is kind of questioned in some different ways by some of the different people. Um, we see that especially ramping up in uh, verse 23 there, um, where the authority of Jesus is challenged by all these different people. Um, and a question for us is how do we respond? How do you respond uh, to the authority of the king? So those are the two blanks there. The king's arrival yields diverse responses. How do you respond to the authority of the king, right? What do we do? Do we question the authority of Jesus in those moments in our life when we're like, uh, you know, I'd really rather not do this. It's probably okay for me to just do this. I'm just going to, you know, do this thing instead, um, whatever it might be, right? Or do we follow those promptings of the Holy Spirit when we know, hey, I really need to serve in this way or I really need to help in this way. I need to do the right thing here. Do we, instead of questioning the authority of Jesus, just submit ourselves to him, right, in each of those individual moments? Um, the final um, two blanks here. Um, so chapter 23, the king pronounces woe on those who appear righteous but hate the king. The king pronounces woe on those who appear righteous but hate the king. And the discussion question is how can we fight the temptation to appear righteous before men? Guys, oftentimes, you know, it's easy just to look good on the outside, right? To kind of have that facade of Christianity. But do we really submit ourselves to the king, right? Do we really have that maturity in Christ, right, that we're talking about, where we aren't questioning his authority, where we care about what God thinks about us ultimately, not just what a man thinks about us, where we actually see that humility, right, that we need to have before him and that same attitude towards other people, putting them before ourselves, and that's practical, tangible, and service, right? Ultimately, all these things, all this maturity looks like our Lord Jesus Christ, right? He is the one who is perfectly humble, even to the point of death, which we're going to get into next week, even death on a cross. And Jesus is not calling you towards something he hasn't already done. Remember what we talked about last week. He's called you to follow after him, right? So true maturity in Christianity looks like emulating our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Think about what he did. Think about his example and all of these things that we've looked at. And a good memory verse would be that Matthew 20, 28, for even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to give his life, uh, but to serve rather, and to give his life as a ransom for many guys. That could be a great starting point for you guys to consider, hey, how do I grow in Christianity? Well, follow the king's example, right? Follow after him. And let's go before him in a word of prayer. King Jesus, thank you so much for who you are, that you are the great master, the king of the ages, Lord, that you came down to this earth 2,000 years ago, 
Lord, that you died for us. And Lord, as we are reading this account, ramping up to that moment, Lord, I pray that we'd be those, Lord, who give of ourselves for the sake of others, Lord, um, that you have saved us, Lord, um, that we have come before you in that childlike faith. And if there's any here who haven't done it, Lord, that they would see their need for you and that they would see, Lord, that you are ready to save, Lord. You stand there um, with arms open wide, Lord, knocking for any who would enter in, Lord. I pray that you would, um, Lord, help people, Lord, now who don't know you to come to know you as Lord and Savior, that they turn from sin, turn to your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for us who do, that we would grow in maturity, Lord, that we would become more and more like you, King Jesus, that we'd serve others, Lord, even as you served us, Lord. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.